World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America is getting more tech hub cities as big firms and workers spill out of Silicon Valley. And one of the hottest destinations is Austin in Texas. Our correspondent examines the risks that influx poses to a proudly weird city. And not all pineapples are alike. The sugarloaf pineapple from Benin has a different shape, color, and taste. And the West African country can now claim the sugarloaf as its own. We look at the wider benefits of these simple geographical indications. First up, though. This week, Colombia's constitutional court voted to decriminalize abortion. Demonstrators outside the court were ecstatic. It's a big legal change, loosening what had been extremely strict abortion laws. But it's also a big personal change for thousands of women who were under threat of prosecution. And more broadly, it's linked to a movement that has real momentum. I mean, it's incredibly important ruling, not just for women in Colombia, who've been fighting for this, but for women across Latin America. Emma Hogan is The Economist's America's editor. It's the latest win by a group of protesters known as the Green Wave, who have been campaigning for legal or decriminalized access to abortion across the region. And they've been really, really important in changing policy. And so what's it been like for women wanting to get abortions in Colombia before this ruling? Women in Colombia had only been allowed to get abortions in incredibly limited circumstances. So it was whether there was a health risk to the women or to the fetus or when pregnancy resulted from rape. But in reality, it was, it was very hard to even get those abortions. And if anyone had an abortion outside of those you know, really quite rigid restrictions, or if they helped a woman obtain one, they could be sentenced to up to 54 months in prison. There have been about 400 cases a year with this, uh, including those involving young girls. Um, so it meant that abortion access for most women, particularly poorer women, was not safe. In total, it was it was restrictive and dangerous. And so now after that ruling, what, what, what does this look like in practice? The ruling, which was voted on five votes to four in the Constitutional Court, gives Colombia one of the widest windows for legal abortion in the world at 24 weeks. This decision doesn't just have an impact on women in the future, but it also has an impact on about 5,000 women now who are estimated to be facing legal proceedings for abortion. This is really important. Studies have shown that women have struggled to get abortions in Colombia even when they had the legal right to do so. So the court has basically given the onus to policymakers to effectively guarantee access to reproductive rights. This means that Colombian lawmakers 
and the executive branch must create a public policy to effectively regulate access. And this is not the only place in Latin America where this kind of ruling has been made. No, I mean, what's remarkable is that it was only really just over a year ago that Argentina legalized abortion. That happened after you know, real pressure from protesters known as the Green Wave protesters who wave a green handkerchief to sort of symbolize all that women have had to do by circumventing the law, putting themselves in risk of danger or imprisonment in order to access abortions or help other women access abortions. So after they had such a success in Argentina, that had a ripple effect elsewhere. Mexico's president, who is himself very devout and a Catholic, said that it granted the possibility of liberalization there. And last year, indeed, Mexico decriminalized abortion. So what happened in Argentina you know, allowed conversations elsewhere in Latin America. Before then, changes in abortion laws had tended to be incremental, with legalization only in a few small countries, such as Guyana or Uruguay or Cuba. What happened in Colombia was that abortion rights groups collected together and have sued uh, to have abortion removed from the penal code, which was at the centre of this ruling. I really feel that it's the visibility of this movement, the vast photos of people waving green flags that have helped it keep momentum. But why has it got this momentum now? What's, what's changed? It's hard to say entirely what's behind the shift now. I think that the scenes from Argentina just over a year ago and the success that campaigners had there uh, very much sparked others uh, elsewhere in the region. Another thing that's going on is that although the Catholic Church is incredibly important in Latin America and although a vast majority of people in many places say that they go to church and that they're religious and that they believe the church's doctrine that life begins at conception. I think there are, particularly among younger people, more secular shifts going on as well. And there's sort of more of a questioning in nature of what the church is teaching, helped in part by social media and sort of being able to see what is happening elsewhere in the region. So I think the combination of, of effective protests, the legalization of abortion in Argentina, and then you know, a more questioning approach to some of what the Catholic Church is teaching people in Latin America that's let this happen. So this is more about a broad secularization of society rather than specifically about women's rights. I mean, what's really striking in Latin America is actually how much women's rights have been lagging behind. And it's not uniform. There's differences in different countries, but the region is home to some of the highest rates of femicides in the world. It also has been remarkably liberal in, in some places, you know, for years over things like divorce or same-sex marriage. So the fact that women have really had to fight for these changes in the law recently suggests just how, how far Latin America has been behind in this particular area and how much further it still needs to go. And so do you get the sense now that with the successes of, of the Green Wave and this week's ruling that, that this is now very much a trend, that we'll see more of these kinds of rulings giving women more rights in the, in the region? Well, the fact that these three rulings in Argentina, in Mexico and Colombia have happened in such quick succession, I think, may give momentum to campaigners. But when you look at a map of Latin America and looking at it in terms of abortion rights and access... These places, although they are three out of the four largest places in terms of population, they still are in a minority. Most places in Latin America still have very restrictive access for women's rights. 
And the biggest of those is, is Brazil, where just this week, Jair Bolsonaro, its right-wing president, spoke out against Colombia's ruling. So although it's hard to tell, I think that this disjunction between what protesters want and what lawmakers are voting on, the politicians, what they see as the issues to base their campaigns on, and Mr. Bolsonaro is, is facing re-election in October, they really are still, it seems to me, still on the side of more restrictive access and not liberalising abortion laws. So I think that it will be a very interesting few years for pro-choice campaigners in, in Latin America, but it's hard to tell just how much this momentum will keep going. Thanks very much for your time, Emma. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Residents of Austin, Texas, talk about keeping their city weird. It's known as the cultural, creative center of a state mostly famous for oil, cowboys, and steaks. For the record, they're good steaks. Recently, Austin has been the focus of a big influx of talent. Silicon Valley types priced out of that market are making it one of America's new tech hubs. There's a new Apple campus opening this year, and Google is finishing a 35-story tower downtown. The thing is, Austin might not be as keen on the tech bros as the tech bros are on Austin. A lot of Austinites are happy to be living in a boom town, but they also have some trepidation when they think about what happened to San Francisco when big tech started thriving. Alexandra Sewage Bass is our senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society, and is based in Texas. Some people are nervous about what might happen to Austin itself. And so in what ways is it a boomtown? How is it growing? Between 2010 and 2020, it was the second fastest growing metro area in America. Its population expanded by a third. It's America's 11th largest city. It's expected to soon displace Silicon Valley's San Jose in the top 10. A lot of the people who are moving are high-profile investors, and we're also seeing some companies move like Tesla and Oracle, which have relocated their headquarters from the Bay Area. A lot of the people who are coming are from many corners of America, but some of the people who have drawn the most attention are the technologists who are coming for a variety of reasons. What are those reasons? What's the draw of Austin in particular? The cost of living is a lot more affordable in Austin. And so entrepreneurs who are in their 20s and 30s who are either wanting to start a company or work for a company where they can afford to live more cheaply, um, Affordability is a really big factor. For the well-heeled and people who have already made it in Silicon Valley, the lack of state income tax in Texas is a draw. And then ideologically, it probably resembles San Francisco 
most closely of any Texas city. Rick Perry, Texas's former governor, called it the blueberry in the red tomato soup of Texas. Texas is a strongly Republican state, but Austin is a blue city. And I think for a lot of people who want to leave San Francisco but find a place that's not too culturally jarring, Austin can be that to them. And what effects has it had if it's been growing at, at quite a rate for, as you say, a dozen years? How is that changing the city? Already, you've seen a really sharp rise in house prices. Between March 2020 and November 2021, the average home value in Austin increased by 56%. It's pretty stunning, and it's the second largest jump of any city or town. A further 20% rise is expected in 2022. You've also seen a rise in some social problems that accompany a rising lack of affordability. So homelessness has been a really big problem. You also see some of the problems that people in the Bay Area complain about, like congestion. Austin, among any Texas city, probably has the worst traffic. I mean, in a sense, it's starting to sound as if all of those things that were great about Austin are swiftly not becoming so great. So it's all relative. I think for longtime Austinites, these are newer problems. But for people from the Bay Area, sure, congestion's bad in Austin, but it was a lot worse in the Bay Area. The cost of living is rising in Austin. But again, relative to California, it's so much cheaper. So I guess it's all in the perspective of uh, the people who are moving there. But presumably, city leaders are, are doing something to try to head off these problems as they come up. Yes, yeah, so I think that's the really big conundrum. A lot of cities in America want to talk about becoming the next boom town, but then of course there's huge costs that come for the population when it comes to gentrification and displacement. So it's up to Austin's leaders to grapple with the downside of growth. They're already talking about expanding the public transport system and a major highway. That's years away. The city is also trying to make it easier to increase housing density. And residents have sued to block that zoning change in Austin. The plus side is that there is a lot of land within quick driving distance of Austin. So that could be developed and that could help lessen the strain on central Austin. But if what Austin wants to do is create a city that is not a real tax on the climate by having people drive very long distances to work, then it would surely want to keep people more centrally. But Austin must also on some level want to, to remain Austin and not just bend to all of the change that, that's going on. Absolutely. I think it's a source of pride for some that tech companies and tech executives are wanting to choose Austin. But they also want to ensure that Austin retains the creativity and flair for weirdness that have made the city so attractive to so many people from around the country. Austin is famous for associations with world-class performers. For example, Janis Joplin recorded her first song, What Good Can Drink and Do. in 1962, while she was a student at the University of Texas in Austin. And a decade later, in 72, Willie Nelson played some of his early hits, such as Crazy and Hello Walls at the Armadillo World Headquarters. I'm crazy. Crazy for feeling so lonely. Where performers such as Rye Cooter and Captain Beefheart had appeared before unleashing a new country sound. Today, Austin is home to many music festivals and the world-famous music, film, and tech event, South by Southwest, which brings tens of thousands of people to Austin every spring. Austinites talk about preserving its culture, as the city's mayor, Steve Adler, told me, 
keep Austin weird. Uh, to me, that's what keep Austin weird has always meant, that it's mm -hmm. okay to be different here. And we have to fight to hold on to that in this city. And that's our biggest danger. And it manifests. And when we've spoken to you before on the show about America's internal migration, there, there comes a sort of threshold beyond which the, the movement of people becomes a, a change in politics. What risk of that is there in Austin? The conventional wisdom is that as Californians move to Texas, the state is likely to become more democratic. Austin is going to be a very interesting test of that conventional wisdom. The people who are moving to Austin tend to be people who have seen the flaws of the Bay Area and do not necessarily want to replicate the Bay Area's politics. And so you have seen a lot of strong libertarians move to Austin, um, and they are becoming politically engaged. I think what's more likely than Californians making Austin bluer is that Austin is going to become a bit more moderate. Something to watch will be this coming November when Austin elects its next mayor. And it will probably be a contest between someone who's quite far left and a more moderate Democrat. And I think the way that Austinites vote in that election will tell us a lot about the direction the city is going. And many expect a moderate to win. Thanks very much for joining us, Alexandra. Thank you, Jason. There really is something about a Florida orange. And to be called Stilton, the cheese can only be made in three English counties. Parmesan cheese, Parma ham, the good stuff is from Parma in Italy. Scotch whiskey, cognac, champagne. They're all protected in one way or another as products linked inextricably to where they're made or grown. Buyers know it and will pay for it. And now the West African country of Benin is hoping that its sugarloaf pineapples will make a similar impression. The sugarloaf pineapple, as the name suggests, is very sweet. And this is something that Benin says has made it very distinctive. Hannah Vioke writes for The Economist's news desk. It's not like other pineapples in the sense that it's described as having a cone shape and the inside isn't yellow, it's white. So these are different properties which make it very different from other pineapples. And as a result of these distinctive qualities, Benin was able to register it and it got the country's first ever geographical indication, AGI. But what does that actually mean? What does a geographical indication denote? So a geographical indication is a legal label that marks a product as being from a particular region and it ensures that no one else can use that name. So the most famous example of a GI would be Champagne from France, which is simply a sparkling wine, but from the Champagne region. So it denotes this particular region and it is therefore deserving of special protection. It's mostly European countries that have these sort of labels. For example, France and Italy have roughly 6,000 each. This is Benin's first. So what's the benefit beyond a, a point of pride? This sort of exclusivity that comes with the name is extremely beneficial because studies have found that a GI label commands a price premium of 43%. And for wine, 
it is a premium of 300%. So they can sell for a lot more. In Africa, it is now being pegged as a tool for development, especially in rural areas. Benin specifically has a lot to gain from this. 38% of people in Benin work or live from farming, and 45% of the population lives on less than $1.90 a day. So there is a lot to benefit from in terms of just being able to sell products for higher prices and getting into foreign markets, especially when it comes to promoting agricultural products. And it seems that lots of places in the region would, would like to do a similar thing if they can make that much more money. I mean, how did Benin get there? So Benin specifically registered it at the African Intellectual Property Organization, which took years. Essentially, they filed an application saying why this pineapple was special, you know, denoting its sweetness, its particular appearance. And the African Intellectual Property Organization considered it and agreed. So that ensures that the pineapple is protected within the 17 member states that are part of this organization. But Benin is not the first to gain the status. In Africa, Cameroon's Penja Pepper received the label back in 2013 and has been quite successful. And now graces the plates of Michelin-starred chefs and sales have helped stimulate a six-fold rise in local farmers' incomes. So Benin seems to want to, to follow in those steps. And do you think it will? So that's the thing. GI labels have a lot of potential, but the key word there is potential. And these benefits are not immediate. They take a lot of time and a lot of work needs to be done in order to achieve it. For Benin specifically, this sort of GI label could sweeten other products that they have, which include cashew nuts, shea nuts, and shea butter. But there are, as always, challenges that will need to be overcome. One of the biggest problems with GIs is that some of the benefits of premium prices don't exactly flow down to the small-scale farmers and are instead captured by middlemen. So this will need to be worked on. Another problem is that other countries have GI labels for their pineapples as well. And so there's no sure sign that this will become the success that it is hoped to be. But it's good to see African countries are taking the necessary steps to get in those markets as well and help their people benefit from it. Hannah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason, for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. GEP AI Powered Digital Transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy, managed services, and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. 
GEP.com.